are entering the Freedom Hut. The Democrats are showing us who they are, and it does not look good if you believe in capitalism, free markets, and individual responsibility and ingenuity. Ocasio-Cortez seems to be the voice of the far left. And then there's this, all of a sudden, Schultz coming out, causing some problems for them. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for joining me. It is always an honor, a privilege, and a pleasure. We're going to cover a lot of ground today on the show. We'll talk about ending wars and how Republicans seem to have a real problem with that. And Democrats only have a problem with it when a Republican president wants to do it. That's not a surprise. Whatever Trump is for, they are against and then we'll also uh, be joined by a, a senior, a former senior DEA officer about this huge fentanyl bust at the border. And just w- what can we do about the, the fentanyl, the, the fight against fentanyl and all these opioid o- overdoses? Um, that's, that'll be a really interesting conversation and uh, have to talk about some of the latest lunacy from, uh, from MSNBC and what they're putting out there and the Russia collusion conspiracy theories. They just... Won't, they won't give it up. They just won't stop. You know, every day, I feel like it's the same. Rachel Maddow's show in particular, whenever I've seen it, which is pretty infrequent, but it's the same show every night. It's something, something, Russia, blah, blah, Trump, 25th Amendment, impeachment, Russia, Russia. I, I don't know how people watch this stuff so much. I don't know who is watching this. It's so stupid. People, the people watching it are not learning anything. It's not worth their time. It's not true. But here we are. What is true, though, is that the Democrats have gotten this this unexpected and rude awakening from Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, who is, along with Michael Bloomberg, trying to speak some sense to the Democratic Party. And the good news for us, my fellow conservatives, is that the Democrats don't want to hear it that they they don't want to take this sound fiscal advice from two people who do know how to run a business you say what you will about mike bloomberg say what you will about schultz they know how to run a business uh, an incredibly effective large profitable business and and you you've gotta you've gotta have respect for that right i mean you, you've got to be able to look at what howard schultz has accomplished and say, okay, well, here's a guy who does have a real skill set, a skill set that's not just demagoguery and telling stupid people what they want to hear and and then you know capitalizing on intersectional politics and identity politics and all the rest of it, uh, but but can really do something. I mean, you are seeing now, I, I, this this happened today, people who are trying to say that Schultz is not self-made, grew up in a housing project, He's not self-made because the housing project you see is paid for with taxpayer dollars and therefore he lived in subsidized housing. So it's not true to call him self-made. He is community made. He is community made. Who does that begin to remind you of? Who does that start to sound a little bit like? 
in terms of that approach to individual achievement. Play 16. If you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. If you've got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Obama, you see, he encapsulated the left-wing socialist Democrat Party mantra in, in one moment in a way that is timeless because that's what they really think. They don't believe in individual excellence and achievement and the meritocracy. That's all nonsense to them. It's all collective action, state intervention. And that's why Schultz has been such a shakeup for them. That's what they don't like to hear this stuff about a guy who brought himself up and did all this, uh, did all this on his own. They say, no, you didn't do it on your own. We did it for you. And therefore, we can tell you what to think, what to say. Your success is our success. Your success is collective success. This is a recipe for the destruction of the system that has brought so much incredible wealth to this country. It's it's hard to fathom what it would have been like in the world today if there had not been and America leading the way for free markets, free enterprise, capitalism, individual rights, rule of law. But Democrats are willing to throw that all in the bonfire of their progressive lunacy if need be. That's why they're talking about taxes in this way. They don't think the money's yours in the first place. Taxes aren't the government taking from you. Taxes are what you are allowed to get from the government. Schultz and Bloomberg disagree. Play two. When I see Elizabeth Warren uh, come out with, you know, a ridiculous plan of taxing wealthy people a surtax of 2% because it makes a good headline, this is what's wrong. I mean, we, we, you, you can't just attack these things in a punitive way by punishing people. Number one, I think the Constitution lets you impose income taxes only, so it probably is unconstitutional. Number two, I don't know of any country that has done that. Uh, people earn money, they pay their taxes, and then they don't have to expect the government to come back and take it, some of it away. <sighs> you know, Mike Bloomberg, on a lot of things, he's terrible. At least he understands what a stupid idea it is to try and institute this wealth tax. Although, in principle, in, from a fairness perspective, it is more fair. It is more fair than an income tax. That is true, but you'd never be able to do it. But they're not in the doing things game, the Democrats. They're in the just say whatever you got to say to get power game. And they're not in the celebrating individual achievement frame of mind. They want to talk about all the things that the Democrat programs and, and government assistance and all that has done. Because if it was a collective achievement, if Howard Schultz pulled himself up out of poverty because of all the great things that left-wing activist groups have achieved with government programs or government housing, whatever it is, then whatever he has, we should be able to take from him. Whatever wealth he has is at our leave. We, we let him have it, right? We being the collective of the progressive status left. 
this is disconcerting. I mean, this is going right. They were not expecting to have, I think, at this time, one, the open advocacy for infanticide by Democrats in two of the most major states in the country, and two, uh, this unexpected challenge to core left-wing Democrat beliefs, that being that you can't just tax people into oblivion and pretend like you don't have to understand a balance sheet and costs and and the ingo, the outgo, and what's happening in a business. Those are important factors in how you would run the government too. But, you know, you didn't build that. Howard Schultz didn't make himself. The people that put together the project and that took the taxes to fund it, they, they made him. I saw someone today say that anyone who scrubs a toilet works harder than Howard Schultz ever has. I'll tell you, I've scrubbed a lot of toilets. It's harder to run Starbucks than it is to scrub a toilet. All right, so the left needs to get a grip here. Their kind of, uh, you know, rise up working class routine is not going to last very long unless they get tethered to reality real soon. And we will be right back. As women, that the pay gap and the wage gap is an injustice that persists through secrecy. And it's an injustice that persists to the present day. The Paycheck Fairness Act addresses, among many things, two very critical ones. One is that we cannot ask for salary history and pay people depending on their salary history anymore. Anymore. Because it is time that we pay people what they are worth and not how little they are desperate enough to accept. And that has nothing to do with their history. It has everything to do with what they are worth today. This woman, Ocasio-Cortez, is a, a just wild ignoramus on the economy. Really, I mean, doesn't know anything. Does not know anything. And is it's becoming more and more apparent all the time. And I tweeted out today, it's obvious to me that she's overpaid. Whatever she's making in Congress, it's too much. But how would this how would this be instituted? The notion of a, of a paycheck fairness app, uh, act and and that the wage gap is this injustice. The wage gap between men and women is a myth. It's a myth. Libs keep talking about it. They pretend to care about science and facts. There is no wage gap. If there were a wage gap, what you would find is in jobs where there are uh, there's really very little difference in the quality of the employee, you would have whole companies where all they would want to do is hire women because if you could save 20%, so I think it's over 20%, they say it's 70, Mike, what is it, 77 cents on a dollar, I think, so it's 23%, something like that. That's, you know, whatever the myth is, I think the myth probably changes over time, but I think it's, you know, 77 or 72 cents on the dollar for every, every dollar a man earns. If you could save 20 or 30% on your labor costs for a business, You'd have a massive advantage. A lot of businesses, which people who have never run any or don't know anyone who runs them, run on a pretty pretty narrow margin. You know, there are some businesses where it's a razor thin margin. And the idea that you'd be able to just come along and say, well, you know, this person should get paid X because well, because what? Because what? How how will you even know? Her thing about how you, you shouldn't be able to ask for somebody's salary history, I say to that, well, hold on a second. 
isn't that an indicator of their what they have been valued at in other workplaces for similar work? I mean, isn't it relevant to the discussion? I don't think it determines your whole, you know, I don't think it determines your whole worth. But this all comes from the lie that people like to be told that they're not making as much money as they think they should because somebody else is holding them back for an unfair reason. And life is not fair. Business is not fair. That's all That's all true. We can start from that proposition. But it's not all because somebody is a man or a woman or any of these things. It's all more complicated than that. I mean, but to pass a Paycheck Fairness Act, this is just going to be a, a huge invitation for all kinds of lawsuits and for people to essentially come up with excuses for, you know, why they don't negotiate well for themselves. And I can tell you, negotiating is somebody who has had to negotiate a fair amount of his own employment contracts recently. Uh, negotiating deals requires not just judgment, but a little bit of, you know, you've got to have uh, some self-confidence and also a little tinge of uh, assertiveness, not aggression, but assertiveness. You know, it's a skill. There's a reason why people who are very good negotiators are paid for that. And obviously, President Trump takes a tremendous amount of pride in what he views as his unparalleled skills of negotiation. Right? It is a skill. It's not just something that anyone can do. And because of the assertiveness factor as well, you're always going to have people who are a little better at getting that higher salary than somebody else because they're willing to look. Are they willing to walk away from the job? Are they willing to uh, say that they have another they have another offer when they do? Yeah, 72 cents on the dollar, producer Mike Semi here. It varies, but that's kind of considered the average. That's a massive savings. If a man and a woman are equally qualified for a job, and the only reason that you would hire the man is because he's a man, anybody who's a capitalist with an IQ over 50 would say, I'm just going to hire women. I'm going to save almost 30% of my labor costs. It's not that simple. It does not work that way. And this is where you start to get into that that conversation that a lot of people, including some on the right that I don't like to hear, which is, you know, men and women also make different decisions. This is reflected in how people say, oh, well, women are relegated to dominance in lower paying jobs. That's not true. Yes, there are a lot of women who are in nursing. There are a lot of women who are in elementary school teaching. That's true. And that's great. Um, there are also women who outnumber men by a, by a pretty wide margin in the veterinary field, which you make really good money. I mean, vets, vets uh, in some ways have a better deal than a lot of doctors do. You make really good money. Is that because there's anti-male sexism in the veterinary field? No, it's because women are more drawn to that field than men are. Because biology matters. Uh, you know, this is, this is when you start to have to look at the cold, hard facts of existence in the world as it is, not as liberals would like to pretend that it is. It's so much easier to say that someone else is the cause of, look, I, I have so many frustrations in life. I have frustrations day to day. I have frustrations. You know, this show should be on every single radio station in the country. That hasn't happened yet. You know, I got frustrated. Everyone's got their frustrations, right? But it's easier, and it's understandable why we take this, take this approach. It's easier to be told that the frustrations that you have, the feelings you have of, you know, either coming up short or it's not enough or whatever, all of that, it, it's easier for that to feel like it is the result of some externality 
somebody else is taking away what is truly what what should be yours. Someone is taking away what you would rightfully get if it were not for them. You know, you didn't build that, right? You didn't build that. Everybody built it. Therefore, we all should get a piece of it. We all should be able to take some of it from you because you only have it because we gave it to you. That's one very effective way of politically capitalizing on envy. Telling a mass of people that, okay, you don't like your job. You don't like your, you know, you don't like your station in life. You don't like how things are going. It's not because of any choices you made. And it's not because maybe you just haven't been that lucky yet and needed to stay in the fight. Somebody else is the reason for this. Their uh, closed-mindedness, their bigotry, their sexism, their whatever, that's the reason why you don't have, that's a seductive argument. We want to believe these things because it is much harder to self-correct, which requires self-honesty. That's a much more challenging thing for people to do. And that's not sexy to sell in in politics, folks. People don't like to hear really personal responsibility. They don't like to hear life is, and I've said this to people that are very close to me recently, You know, the older I get, the more I realize we are all just a compilation of our choices. We are a compilation of our choices. Who you are as a person is just really, you are all the choices you have made throughout life. Better for worse. Um, That's what, you know, how you treat people, how you treat yourself, how you go about your day-to-day, everything. You are just your choices, your actions and your words, your choices. But if a politician can come along and say, oh, no, that's not true. You're, you're, you're having these problems. You have these frustrations because of someone else. This is why socialism is so potent because of this. Because socialism both pretends to have the answers to all of your ills and frustrations and pretends to be able to solve them in a way that's going to be more, more pro, result in more prosperity and be more fair and better for everybody. So why wouldn't you sell Why wouldn't you uh buy into this why wouldn't you want to be a part of this right socialism is appealing psychologically that's why it's so important that we pull it apart and tackle this based on the substance and only mock it insofar as we have to or because we have to have a little fun when aoc is talking more coming up and we can all almost every single person in this country can acknowledge some privilege of some of some type you know i'm a cisgendered woman. I will never know the trauma of feeling like I'm not born in the right body. Mm-hmm. And that that is a privilege that I have mm-hmm. no matter how poor my family was when I was born. Um, but it's really hard for some people to admit that they, you know, it, it's part of this weird American dream mythology that we have that for a lot of, in a lot of circumstances, isn't as true or isn't as clearly communicated as we'd like for it to be or yeah. we wish it were. There you go. More AOC, Ocasio-Cortez in action here, saying things that kind of sound smart, at least to liberals, but when you drill down into them a little bit, when when you look just beneath the, that surface level, it's it's complete silliness it has no real meaning or rather we can start from the proposition of ask what does that mean she acknowledges her privilege because she was born cisgendered essentially what she's saying is because i'm not suffering from gender dysphoria i have a privilege that i have to acknowledge now let's just start with this 
where does it end? Where does privilege end? Is there attractive people privilege? Because I think that if, for people that I know who are really good looking, that makes their life easier than anything else possible, except for maybe you know having a lot of family money. And maybe some people would even take being really, really good looking over having a lot of family money. But the people that I know who are really good looking, life is is that, is that a form of privilege that has to be accounted for in in uh, political and social interactions? Where does this stop? Do I have to acknowledge my privilege because I don't suffer from multiple personality disorder? I I, I do have that. I do not suffer from multiple personality disorder, which is a very rare condition, as it turns out. But uh, I don't have that. So am I privileged? The transgender community is, as a percentage of this country, very small. But we, we talk about it a lot, don't we? I mean, the, the, the Democrats and the media have very clear and very obvious agendas when it comes to the not just the LGBTQ community, but specifically the trans community now. It gets a lot of attention, and, and this is now trendy. It is fashionable. To say that being born cisgendered, which just means you are either male or female, that's what cisgender is. I'll tell you, I I got a bigger I got a bigger actual functional vocabulary than 99% of leftists that I meet. And I'm just not saying 100% because I don't want to sound conceited, but it, it's actually 100%. Uh, I had to learn what the word cisgendered meant two years ago. I said, what? What is this cisgendered all of a sudden? Uh, but this is... Important to the left because talking about privilege in any context is really just a function of acknowledging the victim status of someone else. And victim status is used by leftists, by Democrats in this country to transfer power from some groups to others. Because when you're a victim, you can make a claim on your oppressor. So if you are a victim of society because of the way you look, the way you sound, the way you, you know, your sexual orientation, whatever it may be. The left then uses that, and it's, and it's especially effective against moral and decent people who you know want to do right by others and, and can get guilted into things. It's particularly effective with them, but they can transfer power then to these oppressed groups because we owe it to them. It, it is owed to you to have special legislation that protects you in this way or that way. It is owed to you that we change our tradition of free speech so that the words we use do not offend people within a certain community or any of the rest of it. This is a, a core lunacy. I mean, this is why Trump was able to win. The you know He doesn't talk about it as much anymore, which I find a little frustrating, but political correctness, which he used to call out by name, is stifling, and people with any sense are really sick of it. Just don't, don't want to hear any more of the nonsense from the PC police. Think that the entire thing is... Uh, is completely overdone now and and is hurting our culture. As, as I've discussed with you, it hurts comedy, it hurts television and entertainment, and you know, just it hurts our ability to discuss things. I'm not just saying this because it's a lazy way of saying I, I could say even funnier stuff than I do on this show, but there are a lot of times when there's a joke that I want to make, and I know I can't make it because even if you're okay with it, all it takes is one smarmy lib in the audience who happens to be tuning in and then they want to make some big thing and they write an email to this, you know, organization and you know then I get all then I get all kinds of problems. But one other thing here is on this competing categories of uh, these competing categories of oppression. 
which is what the and this is all intersectionality. This is all a discussion really of intersectionality. And Ocasio-Cortez saying that she's privileged because she is cisgendered. What are we supposed to really do with that? You know, I asked before, what does it mean? What do we do? What action are we supposed to take? Is it really enough for us just to walk around and say, well, you know, I, I recognize my privilege and I recognize it. So then, you know, as long as they're okay. That's it? No. They must want something with this. They must be asking for people to recognize their privilege because they're at least trying to get a change in behavior and probably to bully people into either I, I, uh, abandoning their own politics or, or adopting the politics of the left. How would you measure this? How would you gauge this? Okay, I, I'm very fortunate in life because I'm cisgender. Does that mean that when I go up for a job against a transgender person, that person should get that job? Is that, is that, I think there are a lot of libs who would say, yes, I would note. And, and I mean this, if you were trying to find a surefire way for your kid who might just be on the bubble to get into, you know, Harvard or Yale or one of these places, if, if, if they're close enough, if your, your son or daughter were close enough, I'd say have them apply as some kind of trans rights activist. The school will take them. The school will take them. It sounds like kind of a privilege to me to be treated specially, to be given special consideration by the media and, and now increasingly by the government. Um, but... Yeah, that's she. It is a trendy thing to say. I have to recognize being cisgendered is privileged. No, it's just recognizing your biology, which is in fact male or female. Smart border security is not overly reliant on physical barriers. There's not going to be any war money in the in the in the legislation. What did he say today? Congress is. It doesn't matter what Congress does. I knew that he wanted it all to himself. I mean, oh, really? A president who wants to have Congress be completely irrelevant in how we meet the needs of the American people? No, come on. To everybody who's wondering how this movie ends, it ends this way. We're going to build a wall one way or the other. I just talked to the president 10 minutes before I came on your show. The president's not doing anything crazy. What's crazy is that they're fighting him after having voted the way they did in the past. Who's right? Will there be a wall or not? Will this wall get done or at least get started and, and really get up and running? I don't know, team. I, I can't tell you that I have a real a real good prediction to make here. I think that this goes to a national emergency declaration. Trump tells the military to build the build the wall, build the fence, and he is enjoined by probably the Ninth Circuit immediately. And that stops him. And then this this makes its way through. And, and then I, I suppose the Supreme Court in maybe a year, year and a half, whenever it's going to be, the Supreme Court will have its say. I do think that Trump will win. I think that the statute about a national emergency clearly uh, makes, clearly gives the president authority from the Congress by its own passage of legislation to do the, to do this kind of thing. But... You know, Pelosi is managing to position herself here as somebody who is uh, and just a complete anti-wall extremist. Not a dollar for the wall. No money in the wall, uh, in the legislation for a wall. Why? Why don't, why don't people ask her about this? Why isn't she being asked to defend why that is? And, and notice how she's also, it's, it's, she's such a, a dishonest and and just 
prototypical politician in all the worst ways, you know, to meet the needs of the American people. Please, Nancy, let's slow your roll with the meet the needs of the American people. Right? You and your party don't believe in enforcing our borders. They definitely don't believe in interior enforcement, which doesn't get talked about at all. I mean, they, they are not in favor of finding illegals and deporting them to their home countries, which is what the law currently on the books that Congress has passed says. They've given funding for fences and, and walls, in the, or you know, fences, walls, whatever it was in the past, and now they've walked away from it entirely and said that this is crazy. The walls that are in place work very well. The upgraded walls work incredibly well. So I just don't think she really has, she doesn't have an honest argument to make. And so what you get from her is just shameless, shameless demagoguery. And that is the way of Nancy Pelosi. The shutdown is probably not going to happen because we're going to get to shutdown time. And everyone is going to say, all right, Trump ended the last shutdown. We know Democrats aren't going to be one be the ones who cave this time around. So with that being the case, why not just go right to a national emergency and start building this fence? Trump does that. I think he's in he's in very uh, very good shape for 2020 and I think that he will eventually be able to build a lot of of that wall. Lindsey Graham is uh, interestingly enough because he's not really all that hawkish on the border. He's not somebody who is particularly uh, anti-illegal immigration. And for him to sort of be out there taking the message to the people that Trump is is all in on this and this is going to happen, I have to say I was I was a little bit I was a little bit surprised. Not a lot, but a little bit. And we will have to see how it goes. By the way, there's also a a caravan. I mean, there's the wall. I mean, Trump gave this press conference today. There's there's the wall and there's the caravan, and these are really important really important issues that need to be tackled. Play clip 20. We pay hundreds of millions of dollars to Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And then they have caravans leaving their country coming up here. And by the way, if you go to Tijuana and you take down that wall, you will have so many people coming into our country that Nancy Pelosi will be begging for a wall. Nancy Pelosi will be begging for a wall. He says, I I don't buy that because... Nancy Pelosi likes illegal immigration. She is favorable to illegal immigration. Um, But we do give a lot of this money to Guatemala, to Honduras, to El Salvador. We give them foreign aid. And, you know, those countries are not going to be any less teeming with people who want to get out because the countries are in really bad shape, which means that what we do at the border now is going to have ramifications for many, many months down the line. There will be consequences to decisions about asylum today that affect what's going on in this country years from now because immigration has long-term impacts and these caravans that are coming up we're going to find out i think that the caravans one we're obviously coordinating with a lot of international ngos but also that these caravans are being planned as a regular thing they say they do it because of safety and numbers, and it's a way of avoiding paying the smuggler's fee. Um, but I also think that this is an idea that came to them from outside outside forces and said, why don't you guys do this? And that's how we got here. Uh, so you know, we, we need a fence to help stop people from being able to just march into the country in caravan fashion. We also need it, and we're going to talk to a DEA agent in the uh, later on in the show. We'll talk to him about, What's going on with uh, ports of entry, with 
the ability to find drugs, a huge, huge fentanyl seizure that occurred today. Uh, you know, the human trafficking is a major problem, a major concern. Here's what Trump said about it today during a, a brief Q&A with the press, play 22. Open borders are very bad for our country. Crime comes in, drugs, human trafficking, so many things. But let's talk about human trafficking. You can't bring women or children through a port of entry where you have people looking into the back of a car, a van, a truck. It has to go out into the open areas where they drive into our country like there's no problem. And that's exactly what they do. They get off the main drag or the main road. They make a right or a left. And then they come right into our country. They go through areas where there is nobody. We need a border wall. If we don't have a wall to stop them, nothing's going to stop them. This isn't about technology. And this isn't about politics. This is about practicality. And it's about security for our nation. Democrats love to talk about how they want drones for the border. I was at the left. Okay, let's say you had let's say you had drones all over the border. I mean, you had a drone, you know, everywhere when you needed it. All the drone tells you is that there are people crossing illegally. You can't continue to surveil them, especially if they get into an urban or even a suburban area. You can't continue your drone surveillance endlessly. And if you don't have the resources on the ground to stop, remember, it's it's not just that people are crossing illegally; it's the speed of the crossing. Does jumping the fence and getting to the states or you know, does running the U.S.-Mexico border take you three or four minutes and you know considerable exertion? Or is getting into America as simple as hopping into a vehicle, you know, going real fast over the border because there's nothing to block you, and then you, somebody tells you to get out and then you make a run for it and you're long gone before Border Patrol ever arrives? These are the complexities of the border debate that don't get reflected at all in the media's talking about it and the the media's coverage of of how this all operates. Uh, But when he's talking about human trafficking, he makes a very good point, which is also that these human trafficking organizations, uh, that's, you know, they're not they're not great at doing false, false paperwork to try to get somebody to America. Right. They're not they're not forging, at least not that I'm aware of. They're not forging passports for people for for human trafficking operations. So the human traffickers are bringing people across the border illegally and they know that every time they do that, they're taking some degree of risk, but you're not going to go to a port of entry where they can check ID and say, sorry, you're not going to get in here. So this is what the fence ties into so many other things. You know, if I, if I said to you that, you know, you need a roof on your house because you don't have a roof yet. And you said, no, I don't need a roof. And I said, no, you did. And he said, well, why do you need a roof? And I said, well, it's going to keep, it's going to let your house be warmer uh, when you want it to be warmer. It'll also keep water and rain and, you know, the elements, you know, keep wild animals out of it. All these different things. You have all these different reasons. You really need a roof. He said, well, Buck, I don't know. I don't know. That sounds like a lot of different stuff. That's not going to. So the roof, what you're saying is the roof is not going to solve all my problems. That's kind of what Democrats do. We say, well, this is a necessary improvement that will affect a lot of other things. And the left says, well, if it's not going to be perfect and fix everything, it's not worth doing. And this is just not this is not discussing in good faith. But we've got a lot coming up here in hour two, team. So stay with me. Global Verification Network is the only dual certified and veteran owned background investigation and vetting company out there. Okay, they are federally certified as a veteran owned small business 
I know the CEO personally. He's a great guy. He cares very much about giving the best customer service and the most efficient and accurate results possible for all of your background investigation needs. These are risk mitigation experts who really specialize in making sure that whatever your size business, they can tailor a program to you so your background checks are done, not something you ever have to worry about again. And any vetting you need, they can get that covered too. Really important for hiring, really important for any property that you may be leasing out to somebody. Go to mygvn.com. Everything you'll need is right there on the site. Again, mygvn.com or call 877-695-1179. That's 877-695-1179. Global Verification Network, leave no stone unturned. You often talk about the diversity of viewpoints in the Democratic yeah. Caucus and yeah. your group. There are pro-life Democrats in, in, in your group. Considering the comments from uh, Governor Northam yesterday, how does that make it harder for pro-life Democrats in the party? Does that cause problems at all? I, I'm sorry, I just don't know what he said yesterday. I just don't know. Yes. Are you going to ask a new question, or is it the same old, same old? Notice how Pelosi there got a little testy. A little testy. Um, and it's because she didn't like being asked that question. Because while Pelosi is an abortion, a pro-abortion extremist, because she is a far-left, lib Democrat, the whole edifice of abortion on demand for nine months of a pregnancy is really only possible if people don't have to answer questions, don't have to tell the truth, and the American people don't know what's going on. It's very important for Pelosi and her whole gang on the left to always use these words like choice to obscure what's really going on, uh, to avoid discussing the details of what the policies they support do legalize. And I, I was pleased to see the outrage yesterday at Virginia Governor Ralph, uh, Ralph Northam because what he said was one of the more horrific things I've heard any public official say in a very long time. But then the spin machines went to work. And sure, you have the usual. You have you know, Media Matters for America coming out to try to defend North. I mean, Media Matters is a place where I, I do not respect the people that work there. I think that if, if you work for Media Matters, which was founded by David Brock, it's, it's, it only exists as a, a tax advantage 501c3 left-wing hit organization on conservatives. That's all Media Matters does. It's written pieces about me. It's you know posted stuff about me in the past. And, and it's, it's a trash bag organization. And any person of decency and honor would choose not to work there. So Media Matter, people who work at moveon.org too, activists, a lot of bad people there. These are places where there's a lot of bad people. They, of course, leapt to the defense of Ralph Northam and tried to rewrite and, and re, uh, reposition what he said so that it wasn't just an, an open and blat- blatant endorsement of infanticide, which it, it was. That's what it was. And in one of the most incredible ever versions of this Republicans pounce idea, you know, th- this is, this is the, the classic liberal propaganda technique for different uh, for different newspapers, and what they do is they say, you know, whenever a Democrat does something wrong and Republicans point it out to them, they say, Republicans pounce. That's always the, that's always the description, Republicans pounce. 
It's never, oh, this person who's a Democrat did something bad that people are rightfully calling out. It's really so here's here's an example of this though. The woman that we heard yesterday, the Virginia delegate who talked about uh, who was asked the question in the Virginia State House about whether a baby could be killed up to the moment of birth, meaning that the, uh, the mother's giving birth, the baby's coming out of the birth canal uh, under the law. And people say, oh, this would never happen. That does not matter. And who knows if that's even true. Under the law, would it be legal to do this? Okay, you could tell me, Buck, it, it's it's legal to go out and, and kill 100 people if you kill 100 people. It's obviously murder if you kill one person, but if you kill 100 people, we'll, we'll create a loophole. You know, you could tell me, oh, well, but no one's going to go kill 100 people for no reason, Buck. And I'd say, yeah, but why is it, first of all, who knows if that's true? And second of all, why is it legal? Why would we make a murder legal? Doesn't make any sense. This uh, delegate, Kathy Tran, who was on the the floor, she was the one who answered the question. The Washington Post wrote about this, and this is their headline, okay? Until this week, Delegate Kathy Tran was known for nursing her daughter on the House floor. Now Republicans are calling her a baby killer. The problem is not, you see, from the Washington Post perspective, the problem is not that a woman got up and said that killing a baby that is being born is in fact legal under the bill that she was trying to support. The problem is the big mean Republicans who said that that is what she said. I mean, this is Soviet-style propaganda. This is as dishonest as, and this is not an opinion piece. This is this is supposed to be a news piece in politics on the Washington Post. Now Republicans are calling her a baby killer. Well, they're probably calling her a baby killer because she wants to make it legal to kill babies. Also reminds me of how people were now, they were trying to defend Northam by saying, because this, this got a lot of attention. I was, I was pleased to see that I was not the only one who was completely outraged by this yesterday. But in order to try to make what Northam said not quite as bad, you know, to make it not quite as, as grotesque and distasteful uh, and immoral and horrific, uh, what what they've said is, oh, well, he was only talking about babies with extreme, uh, when he said, you know, keep it comfortable while it's been delivered and then figure out what to do with it. I mean, it's, it's, it's chilling even to just say and just remember what he said. But now they're trying to tell us, oh, it's only for babies that have extreme uh, birth defects. That was the, the way that they went today with, you know, Planned Parenthood jumped into action, all these different, all these different left-wing, just awful, awful organizations. And that's not true. Turns out that uh, a large percentage of, of babies, for example, with Down syndrome uh, are aborted. And in a lot of cases, you can't tell that a baby has Down syndrome until uh, many months into the pregnancy. So this idea that nobody's ever going to just say, I, I'm, I'm going to, you know, the law says I can do this, I'm going to do this, is not accurate. Um, I, I'm just glad that the people were, were holding the Democrats to some account. I also said that people say, oh, it's only two states. It's not the Democratic Party. Th- this, is, this is just disingenuous and stupid stuff. But when people are desperate, when they're desperate to believe that what they what they have said or what they support is not 
a terrible and immoral thing, they'll just say whatever they have to say. I mean, they, they'll do whatever they have to do. And that's where that's where Pelosi comes in. You know, that's where Pelosi's saying, oh, I don't know what he said. I think she, I think she's lying. I think Nancy Pelosi is lying about not knowing what Ralph Northam said. But she wants to dodge the question and just hope it goes away. And I got one other thing I want to bring up for all of you before we change the topic. I'm not going to talk more about abortion today, but I wanted to, I wanted to follow up on yesterday's conversation. Where are all of these sanctimonious uh, Christians? Where are all these sanctimonious Christians? A lot of uh, anti-Trump evangelicals, for example, anti-Trump Catholics. Where are they on this? You know, they. I, I've been hearing them make all this noise about how evangelicals, you know, care about climate change too. It's not a lot of them. I know it's a small minority, but I, I hear these these lo- these loud voices. Evangelicals care about climate change. Evangelicals believe in, in you know, a, na- a nation of immigrants. That's what America is. Where are they on this? Where are they? Those same voices, those authors, those, those spokespersons for their, in their mind at least, their denomination, their faith, who go on TV. If they don't speak out on this, they have no credibility on any of those other issues. You know, if there's a, a point, point to a prominent Catholic, whether in the clergy or, or in the media or somebody who does media, if that person does not speak out against what's going on right now in the legislature, what was passed in New York and what is being passed in Virginia, they are frauds. They're frauds. And so I, I think that's something that we all do need to remember going forward when they lecture us about how, you know, Trump said, Trump said uncouth things about women on a tape once. A lot of people have heard of the AARP, and you might already be a member or somebody you know might be a member. But did you know that the AARP is basically the Bernie Sanders of senior political organizations, right? It's all about government control of your health care, bigger taxes on middle, middle class Americans. You don't want any of that stuff. How about I give you all the benefits of the AARP, but none of the progressive nonsense? I recommend AMAC. Why AMAC? Well, AMAC is a great value for its members. Discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, and your investment in AMAC allows AMAC to act for policy that is good for America and that is in line with your values. Join the conservative alternative. Join AMAC. Stand with them as they fight the good fight. Become a member today. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U.S. slash buck. AMAC is better. Better for you, better for America. And this isn't everybody, and I don't want to generalize the crowd, but I mean, you do, you see a lot of like um, angry faces, people that their sole purpose is to find this gotcha moment to catch you. Their job is not to get information, which is what the briefing is supposed to be. It's to trip you up. We think we have an amazing story to tell. Uh, We're not afraid to take tough questions, but we wanna make sure that it's productive and that it's not for the purpose of destroying the president, distorting the message or destroying the messenger uh, as we go through that process. Sarah Huckabee Sanders explaining there why they're not doing quite as many press conferences as they used to. And, and I, I understand I understand exactly why. I think all of you do too. It's not about getting information. It just turns into a roast session for the lib audience that's watching and reading a lot of these outlets. 
And this is why the the accosting of the White House press briefing has really brought about its demise. You know, this just relentless, crazy grandstanding from people who then turn around and act like, oh, well, I didn't do this. I didn't do anything that was that bad. And I'm just trying to push them and get. No, you're not. We know that we know what you're doing. We know what you're doing. You are trying to make a name for yourself. You're trying to get attention for yourself. And the way to do it is by going after the administration. The hostility that you show to anybody attached to this administration is a way of building bona fides on the left. And unfortunately, we still have an overwhelmingly left-wing dominated media apparatus. And they have just beclowned themselves over the course of the Trump presidency. In In that sense, I actually like this. I like that we see April Ryan and Acosta and and others being so obviously uh, disrespectful to White House people that are trying to give, you know, trying to give messaging to the press corps. I mean, this is about the the flow of information from the White House to the press. The, The press is not really needed the way that it used to be. This is what is I know this is really anathema. They don't want to hear this over the Washington Post. They're saying, oh, we need the press now more than ever. It's not really true. Uh, what you need are people that are getting information and sharing information who are trustworthy. But you don't have to be a journalist to, to be able to do that. And journalists in general, I think, are way too full of themselves. I mean, they have this whole notion that without them, democracy would cease to function. Anybody walking around now with a smartphone and a cell phone or, or Wi-Fi connection is essentially able to be an instantaneous publisher of news and information. And a lot of people are exactly that. But, though, you know, the White House could just put out put out its statements about its policy I mean, to, to answer these the questions. The questions are overwhelmingly partisan, right? They are partisan attacks against the White House. So what's the what's the point of this? You usually are, are seeing a focus during these hearings or not hearings, sorry, during these uh, briefing briefings, hearings, briefings, that's all blending together, a focus on questions that are not meant to illuminate anything for the benefit of the American people, but are meant to be an attack of some kind on the administration, are meant to undermine and and beat down the administration in the public eye. So I, I totally understand why they're just, they're sick of it. And I think that if nothing else, the Trump administration has forever changed the way that the national press is going to be viewed by the American people. And that's a good thing. Uh, because those of us who work in it know, I and mean, those of us who have spent time in these newsrooms have a full understanding of just how uh, conceited a lot of these national journalists are and also how uh, deep, bo- both incredibly arrogant and deeply insecure they are at the same time. Uh, because the whole profession has gone through a lot of change. And they they have created this mythology, which doesn't exist. I mean, I keep saying this, but it's really true. In the UK, journalists traditionally have been kind of viewed as, as uh, you know, people who are a little bit of uh, scoundrels. You know, the, the the newspaper masthead itself may be very respected, but the journalists are usually fast talking, heavy drinking. I mean, there's this kind of romanticized but also unromantic view in the UK of of journalists throughout the 20th century. And in the U.S., we have this whole thing of journalists are almost their own. They really do think of themselves as almost their own branch of government. You know, and you go back to the 
days of the American founding and when, you know, people that were utilizing the printing press were so essential. I mean, you think of Thomas Paine, you think of some of these early, you know, the American Aurora with what, uh, Benjamin, Benjamin Bach, I think, uh, uh, you know, you, you look at these different papers that had such a big role in the, in the, in the founding and in getting the word out about what was going on with the revolution and the, in the early days of the continental Congress uh, but journalists haven't evolved with the times. I mean, they, they still cling to this idea today that they are a necessary bulwark against power. It's funny because the clowns that write for that crappy website, The Bulwark, definitely think of themselves this way. That's that never Trump thing where you got Charlie Sykes. I mean, I just my thing about my conversation with Charlie Sykes was you know, he came on my show and he was just he was hostile in a smug way without with when it wasn't necessary and i just i just don't like that i don't like that you know i i have a, a pretty relaxed and somewhat irreverent way of talking to people both onset and offset a lot of the time uh particularly offset and and i don't i don't like any of this uh unearned arrogance that a lot of journalists bring to the table and, and the bulwark and those guys i mean look sykes is not i mean stuff he writes not is not good stuff he says is not smart i don't know i don't know one of you told me, somebody wrote me a, a message saying you used to listen to him in Wisconsin on radio. And I was like, really? Was that an interesting show? I would be shocked. Um, but the, this notion of the journalists are the people that present us with the information we need. And without them, we would all be information starved. I mean, this is this is preposterous. I think the the truth is that we probably have too many journalists in this country. We have too many people that are operating in this in this field and in this realm and not being honest about what it is they're trying to do, you know, not understanding what the value is of their platform and just hoping to to cling to some older model where they're, you know, the, one of the reasons that they always, they always complain about institutions and how Trump is undermining institutions is because to journalists, the most important institution probably in the United States is the free press. Now, I could, I, I would actually say that that's a true statement Except a free press is not lib media outlets that have been in operation for you know anywhere from a hundred years to a year. I mean, you know that's not what a free press is. A free press is you and I can say whatever we want, write whatever we want, and share information and criticize the government openly without government action. A free press is not synonymous with the New York Times. That's not a thing, and that's where the journos. I think run into a bit of a bit of trouble with reality because they are not a free press. There's plenty of press out there. There's plenty of different people that are publishing and sharing information. And as long as the government doesn't crack down on that, we'll be in good shape. So I, I, I think that uh, the White House is taking the right move. You're also going to see a big increase in the surrogate operations. And I mean, the campaign, the Trump campaign is going to be largely running a lot of the information out there to the American people instead of Sarah Huckabee Sanders getting abused by these, you know, imbeciles from CNN and NPR and elsewhere. So that's what I see happening. Uh, let's talk, I'm going to talk to you about, uh, well, a little more about dumb people in politics, but then we will discuss this resolution in the Senate it has to do with what's going on in Syria and, and Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, the intelligence community put out this report Nothing really that nothing really that new, groundbreaking, or interesting in it. But the Senate's using this now to do a little bit of uh, 
you know, telling us what they think the Trump administration should be doing on foreign policy. We'll, we'll break that down for you. Basically, they don't want to end the wars. I got a problem with that. The people are doing the shouting almost universally are the same people who said Joe Biden shouldn't run because it was Hillary Clinton's turn. And they're the same people who put their thumb on the scale for Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders because he couldn't win. And they guaranteed us let that me ask you they one guaranteed question. Let me, let me... us that Donald Trump would never be elected. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Say what? When you look at where the race is right now, Hillary Clinton's gonna be elected the 45th president of the United States. I think they need to spend some serious time preparing concession speech. The magnitude of the electoral catastrophe for Republicans that is upon them uh, just really can't be overstated. The presidential race is effectively over. And Hillary Rodham Clinton will be the 45th president of the United States. Chuck Schumer will be the majority leader of the United States Senate. And the only question that's still up in the air. What's the over under uh, on the Electoral College uh, victory for Hillary Clinton? I think she's trending over 400. Trending over 400? Yes. So Democrats take the Senate? Yes. Democrats take the House? Close. The first person who addresses Hillary Clinton on Tuesday night as Madam President-elect that matters is Donald Trump. Steve Schmidt might be the dumbest person on cable news. Steve Schmidt might, in fact, be the dumbest. You heard there, he's saying, the same people saying this and that of the Democrats now, we're saying the wrong things about the election before, right? The same people who were acting like they had all this insidery knowledge and they were the ones that really knew what was going on, those people are now telling you who's going to win the Democratic primary. Meanwhile, Steve Schmidt made an imbecile of himself on TV. I mean, this guy ran the McCain campaign, and I knew that, you know, even before I was in media and politics, I knew that he was bad news because he's the only one, he's played by Woody Harrelson in the HBO movie uh, about uh, called Game Change, about the Sarah Palin period of the McCain uh, campaign. And he's the only one that, that is made to look good in that, which means that he clearly talked to all the lib journalists and tried to cover his butt and was making friends with people. And he goes on the real-time Bill Maher show and he says stupid things there. He's just not a very smart or ethical guy. I mean, I've heard from people that worked on that campaign that he's just, he was a constant leaker, constantly out for himself, didn't have any good ideas, you know. And then afterwards, after then that campaign was very poorly run. The McCain campaign was poorly run and got annihilated by Obama. I mean, it wasn't even close. McCain got crushed by President Obama. And now he's going on TV and, and he's acting like he's somebody who can actually see the future. And I just feel like sometimes it's important to point out that these people, a lot of them, a lot of them go on TV, especially these political consultant types, are frauds. They're phonies. They don't really know anything. They're not smart. They don't bring much to a conversation of anything. But that's not even the dumbest thing that was said on MSNBC in the last 24 hours. In fact, the dumbest and perhaps craziest thing said on MSNBC in the last 24 hours comes from their number one, most highly paid, most revered television talent. Rachel Maddow, everybody, who people talk about on the left like she's some kind of a god now because she's been able to beat Fox in the ratings certain nights, which is the left is, oh my gosh, it's so amazing can beat we can beat Fox in the ratings. But you know, you turn on MSNBC, you turn on CNN, you're put in this weird loop of an alternate an alternate universe where 
Russia collusion is the single most important thing that has ever been discussed ever in any uni- in any world ever. And this, though, last night was just the most desperate, let's take cold weather and make it a Russian plot or a, Russia, a possible Russian conspiracy I've ever heard in my life. And this is an embarrassment, but you should hear it. Play 23 national intelligence telling us all in unclassified form in black and white china and russia can do this today now whenever they want to in other words we're relying on their good graces that they're not and it is like negative 50 degrees in the dakotas right now what would happen if russia killed the power in fargo today right what would happen if all the natural gas lines that that service sioux falls just poofed on the coldest day in recent memory, and it wasn't in our power whether or not to turn them back on. I mean, what would you do if you lost heat indefinitely as the act of a foreign power on the same day the temperature in your front yard matched the temperature in, our, in, in Antarctica? I mean, what would you and your family do? What if Russia, when it's so cold outside, shuts off our natural gas? This is, this is crazy. And you, you'll be thinking to yourself, Buck, why would she even, it's just such a dumb thing to say. Why is she even going, oh, that's right. Because Russia fear-mongering of any kind, even bizarre, detached-from-reality Russia fear-mongering, that is catnip for the MSNBC audience. They can't get enough Russia fear-mongering. Really the dumbest thing I've heard in a long time. But there you go. More of that coming your way. My amendment would acknowledge the plain fact that al-Qaeda, ISIS, and their affiliates in Syria and Afghanistan continue to pose a serious threat to us here at home. I recognize the danger of a precipitous withdrawal from either conflict. Well, you know, I support the president on this. I think to call it a precipitous withdrawal after 17 years is ludicrous. I mean, we've been there 17 years. We need to learn as a country how to declare victory. We got bin Laden. We disrupted the people who attacked us. I was all for that. I think we need to continue to have surveillance of the region. But I don't think we have to have soldiers there forever. We have to learn how to declare victory. And frankly, I'm with President Trump in the sense that we're spending $51 billion a year in Afghanistan. Let's spend some of that money at home. We'd have plenty of money for a wall if we weren't, you know, building roads, bridges and everything else, gas stations, hotels. We're building $51 billion worth of stuff in Afghanistan every year. I'm for spending that money here at home. It's disheartening to me that the GOP establishment, led by uh, Mitch McConnell here, is so opposed to ending endless war. And sure enough, you have there are lunatics out there like Max Boot who are saying, we need to view this as a hundred-year-long conflict. And so we just should accept that we're going to have troops in these countries for a hundred years. No. We, we don't need to accept that. Look, I, I'm the more I look at some of our military deployments in places, even like South Korea and Okinawa, and we got military in so many places all over the world. I don't think we need to have quite the deployments that we do. I don't think we need to have quite as many soldiers in as many places as we do. Um, and And the fact that the GOP still has this very obvious uh, hesitancy to scale down combat zone deployments in places where, you know, we should be able to answer. Let me walk through this systematically. I'm going to try to take some of the partisanship and the people, oh, I'm right, no, you're right, and all that stuff out of this. You, you can apply with these very important questions of where we have military 
deployed in a combat zone. You can apply some very straightforward uh, frameworks for how to think about this. Here's one. What is the U.S. national security interest of this deployment? Now, if the U.S. national security interest starts to fall very quickly into a discussion of, well, we've been there and we need to show leadership and we need to make smart, we need to do smart diplomacy and, you know, a lot of kind of buzzwords and, and honestly, a lot of BS, it's a bad sign. The, the answer to what is the U.S. national security interest should be a very clear straightforward and that's not just what's the security interest because we're not supposed to be sitting around saying well if we stay in afghanistan it will help the uh, remnants of the northern alliance you know the the tajiks and and the uzbeks and hazaras who are the, you know the backbone of the northern alliance it'll, it'll help them stabilize the country against malign Taliban influence from the Pashtun regions in the south and the east. No, that's their national security interest. I mean our national national security interest. What's in our interest? And if it's, oh, we can't leave because the mission's not done, well, then I'll say, well, explain to me what the mission is. Again, you know, you, you have to avoid a tautology. You have to avoid going in, go, going after these foreign policy questions with essentially a series of more questions. You know, we should be there because it sounds strategy to be there. Okay, why does it sound strategy? Well, because we think that there's, uh, you know, there's a, a long-term benefit to the region for stability. Okay, why is that long-term benefits for stability in the region in our interest? You know, you keep chasing the answers with more questions, and I know it can be kind of a frustrating experience maybe, but I think it's a really important one. Because we should expect that those in our leadership, in our government, who are sending young men and women into places where they're not, you know, they're not just under some threat. They are still taking casualties. People are dying. People are being killed in these places. And you also add into that the cost. Yeah, I'm amazed at how many, honestly, how many uh, conservatives I know who are not anti-Trump, but but very critical of Trump, who think that. You know, having a few thousand guys in the middle of the Syrian desert is, you know, no big deal. Uh, the the cost of bringing in, you know, on C-130s or however else is the, the cost of bringing in the equipment and material is is amazingly high. And you know, this is not an inexpensive thing to do to, to set up 2000 American troops in a hostile foreign country that's in the midst of a civil war and keep them keep them secure and supplied and able to take the fight to the enemy. This is not a minor thing. This is this is very, uh, you know, this is a, a challenging and expensive thing. Certainly expensive. So you ask these questions though, and, and you you find yourself getting very, uh, not uh, unsatisfactory answers. You know, in the case of Syria, which you know, I came out and I said that I opposed the cons- the somewhat establishment conservative view on this that oh, we have to stay there because the fight against ISIS is not over. All right, that's that's an interesting concept. The fight against ISIS is never going to be over. ISIS is jihadism. It's just the iteration of a jihadist idea that has spread around the globe to tens of millions of people. Now, not tens of millions of them are, are terrorists or jihadists, but they do believe in some version of a, a caliphate or a, uh, a, a time will come when there will be a caliphate. And if we're going to be in Syria until ISIS is entirely eradicated, we're going to be in Syria forever. That's 
So we need to understand what the standards are that are being applied here. If we're going to be in Syria until ISIS is no, long, no longer exists in that country, we are going to be there forever. All right. If we're and now you take this to another level of the Syrian conflict, we're there to to counterbalance. I heard a lot of people say this, and they think they're very clever and very wise when they say it, and they're wrong. So we're there to counterbalance Iranian and Russian uh, actions in Syria. How are we going to do that exactly? They're flying in men and materiel whenever they want. We're not shooting their planes out of the sky. We're not shoot. We're not at war with the Assad regime. We're not. People like to people I think sometimes get confused and seem think that we're in a war with the Assad regime. We are not at war with the Assad regime. So how are we going to counterbalance because we're going to have Americans there? You think Assad is going to uh, play more nicely inside his own country? He's killed 500,000 of his own people or 500,000 people have been killed in, in his war for him maintaining power. We don't have that kind of sway and we shouldn't. We shouldn't. So if we're there to counterbalance Iran and Russia, unless we're willing to go to war, unless we're willing to go to war with Iran and Russia uh, over the Syria issue, that's a fantasy. Uh, And we will be there forever. Here's another one. And this is the one that you really have to think about. And and I think that uh, I've thought more about it and I came to this one. The Kurds. We've been very concerned about the Kurds, understandably so. They've been good allies in this fight against the Islamic State, and we should, as a matter of principle, as a matter of, of honor, want to take care of our allies. We're worried about the Turks, which also brings up this question of Turkey's a NATO ally, so why is it that we have to be so worried about a NATO ally going after another one of our allies? We've asked them very clearly, don't do that. Okay, so then we go to this other level. All right, fine. We want to make sure that the Turks won't attack the Kurds. That means we have to stay forever. And when I say forever, I mean, no one knows what the world's going to look like in 100 years, but that means, you know, we're there for the next decade easily, maybe the next few decades. Because the Turkish-Kurdish conflict predates this whole mess in Syria by, well, decades and, and really centuries, actually. I mean, these are, these are ethnic conflicts as much as they are ideological and state-level conflicts the Turkic people against the Kurdish people who have both been in the region for a very, very long time. So, you know, that's just on the Syria question. I mean, I, I can break this down on, on any number of different foreign policy challenges but or foreign policy issues, but you see what I mean. You have to be able to answer these simple questions. And I do not believe that the Republicans who are in favor of continued war in these places have sufficient answers for these questions. I just don't believe it. I just don't think they've thought through it enough. I think that they haven't really given uh, a, given what they need to in terms of review of what has gone on here in the past and what the likelihood is of it changing in the future. I really, I really would like to see us end the war in, in Afghanistan and the war in Syria. Now, when we or end the war in Syria and in Iraq, by the way. Is there a chance that the Taliban, if this deal that we've apparently struck with them, that this might lead to the, the Taliban seizing power and, and being a major problem? Yeah, there is there is that real possibility. But is that possibility going to be there at this point no matter what we do? Yes. I mean, it, it's just enough. It's enough. We have been at war since I was a sophomore in college. We've been at war. This country has had troops in active combat zones 
for my entire adult life, and I'm looking at 40 here pretty soon. So what does that say? You know, I think of Marcus Aurelius in uh, the, that, that scene. It was a, the actor, he's actually passed away. He's a great actor and does a great job in the movie Gladiator where he says, you know, Maximus, you know, we've had, what is it, you know, two years of peace in 20 or, you know, whatever. I forget what the, the breakdown is, but he's like, I just, I want it all to mean something and, you know, I brought the sword, nothing more. And, you know, you just think, why do we, why should we accept that we live in a state of, of perpetual military conflict? That's not the way this is supposed to be. And I know there are all these arguments about counterinsurgency and counter-radicalism and all these things. No. I think we've had enough. I think these wars should end. And even if they end on, on terms that we don't like, we're not leaving because our soldiers lost. We're not leaving because our military was defeated. We're leaving because we don't have anything that we really need to do there anymore. And also, it's really just not our problem. And we need to be able to say that. So I disagree with McConnell here, and I think that uh, Rand Paul is much closer to the mark. If you're in a relationship, there are a couple of important dates that you know they require roses, right? Birthdays, anniversaries, and Valentine's, which is right around the corner. So when you're looking for the biggest and best quality roses out there, please check out my friends at 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, you can get 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses for only 10 bucks more. This is a great offer from 1-800-Flowers. 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses, only $10 more. You pick your delivery date when you call 1-800-Flowers. They will handle the rest. It is so easy. When it comes to life special occasions, do it the right way. I do, and I don't settle for anything less than my rose authority, 1-800-Flowers.com. To order 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click that radio icon, and enter the promo code BUCK. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, radio icon, promo code BUCK. Hurry, offer expires today. They might tunnel from the border to those drainage pipes and try to get around this main channel gates to, to dig around them. So that's why we have to have agents underground patrolling all the pipes. A lot of ways that drug smugglers and the cartels try to get stuff across our border. Tunnels is one of the ways. Tunnels are expensive. Getting through open territory where there's no border patrol and no border fence. That's another way. And then, of course, there's ports of entry. What's the reality of trying to make this more difficult for the cartels and prevent this poison from pouring into our country, which, as we know, is killing tens of thousands of Americans now a year? We have somebody who can really answer these questions. We're joined by Derek Maltz, who's a former agent in charge of DEA's Special Operations Division. Derek, thank you for giving us your time. Hey, Buck, thank you very much for having me on the show. I look forward to the conversation. So... Today, fentanyl was seized by Border Patrol in what what is being called a a record bust, and the amount of fentanyl here was uh, was was very high. It was 114 kilos of fentanyl, a kilo of fentanyl pills, 179 kilos of methamphetamine, and in, in a in a tractor trailer. So this was at a a port of entry. This has become a contentious part of the discussion over border security recently, Derek. Uh, what what's going on right now? How are the cartels getting stuff through the ports of entry? 
Okay, so first of all, Buck, let me just uh, explain something with that fentanyl seizure. The public must understand that one kilogram of fentanyl can kill 500,000 people. So it's been reported that uh, this particular seizure could have killed 57 million people based on the fact that two milligrams can kill an adult. Now, to answer your question, I mean, obviously, the cartels are running a multi-billion dollar enterprise, and they're going to continue to blitz this country with their poison because there's a huge demand. So the country must focus on, you know, educating the public and the kids and everybody else regarding the the dangers of these new chemicals. Because it's not like the old days where somebody smoking some marijuana that has a very low THC content. You're talking about synthetic drugs that are made in labs in China. And the other thing that the public doesn't realize is there's a very dangerous relationship growing between the Chinese uh, organizations and the Mexican cartels. Now, the scary part, Buck, is the cartels are all throughout our country. They're in every one of our cities. They're in over 50 countries. So the Chinese, not only are they making the chemicals uh, to produce fentanyl, but they also are sending ton quantities of precursors into Mexico to the ports. That's how they're making all this industrial uh, quantities of methamphetamine. So you have a situation where as long as there's demand, there's going to be ways to get it in the country. Now, everyone talks about the southern border. But what people are not talking about is go back into the 80s with Miami and the Caribbean islands. They, they already have opened up some of those uh, smuggling routes, Buck, because they're smart. They know the U.S. government is focused on the southwest border, so they're pushing people over through the Caribbean and, and drugs. But on your question regarding the port of entry, one of the things the public doesn't understand is if there was a wall, the wall itself is not going to stop drug smuggling. But what it's going to do is it's going to be able to focus our resources from Border Patrol at the port of entries with the latest and greatest technology, the screening. They could then do a better job at looking at every tractor trailer, every car, and they could do a much better job figuring out who these people are coming into our country. Right now, they're all over the, it's like the Wild West on the desert, I mean, on the, on the border, and they can't keep up with it. It's just too, the magnitude is too high. So what what should we be doing then? I mean, how, you know, as you're telling me they're using different routes, they're going back to the old, kind of the old 80s cocaine route, right, of, of through the Caribbean and, and then up into Florida. Uh, it feels like wherever we apply more research, and this is a broader drug war question than just a, a border question, but fentanyl killed over 70,000 Americans, or I should say opioids, killed over 70,000 Americans last year in overdoses. Some percentage of that is obviously prescription drugs, which I know DEA has been cracking down on that, too, uh, and, and overprescribing of medications. A lot of it is illegal stuff. The cartels are making pills that look like pharmaceutical pills because it's then easier to sell them on the street. So what, what do we do here? I mean, you were you were involved in trying to trying to stop this scourge. Some people look at look at they say, uh, you know, we just can't win this fight. What do you say? Okay, so I say go talk to the parents that are burying their kids because of the dying of fentanyl. So you got to continue to fight. Law enforcement is one part of it. We have a much bigger problem. Unfortunately, after 9-11, our U.S. government completely neglected the drug education issues, the commercials, the, the role models from the public uh, you know, media and the sports. They, they should have been doing way more education to the kids in middle school and elementary school to get them understanding the dangers of this stuff. The kids, unfortunately, thought, you know, taking 
mommy's prescription out of the, the medicine cabinet was fine because the doctor prescribed it. So there was a, the messaging was terrible. And, and unfortunately, our country in Washington, they focus on the problem of the day instead of looking at long-term strategies. They should have been educating the kids. Now we have like a, a runaway train, Buck, because we have a lot of catching up to do on the education side. But here's the thing. What, what nobody really talks about either is that this is a very global issue. So now, like, we were very involved with the Hezbollah and the, the cocaine cartels in Mexico and the millions of dollars a month that we're making, uh, sending money out of, New, out of the U.S. In the, in the used car businesses to support Iran, to support Hezbollah. So, you know what, Buck? This is a much larger issue than people in Washington understand. You have terrorists increasingly turning to crime and criminal networks for their funding, and drug trafficking is generating $400 billion a year, according to the U.N. So we have to do a better job with all our international partners. We have to do a better job internally. You know, Buck, I know this is no surprise to you because I know your background, but in America, we're still not sharing information across the agencies on these different threats. We have silos all over the place. We're losing leadership in different government agencies that are not holding people accountable. So until we start doing some of that stuff and fixing the broken systems, you know, we're going to continue to have massive problems. Now, the good news is we have seen a lot better cooperation. We have seen some more successes. But honestly, Buck, because the demand is so high, the cartels are going to just keep pumping it. So that's why I've been very vocal recently that I think at this point in our country's uh, history, we need to seriously consider designating the cartels as terrorists because the State Department has some criteria. And I reviewed this criteria very closely, and I don't see anything in that criteria that would prohibit uh, prohibit. Uh, the U.S. of declaring them terrorists. If we declare them terrorists, then we can do a lot more with the U.S. Uh, power that we have and some of the authorities that we have in the different agencies. Uh, this is not a law enforcement issue alone. Law enforcement has done a great job. They're out there working their butts off day in and day out. The Border Patrol, they're very dedicated. They're not home at the, at the dinner table with their family. But the thing is, Buck, we have a way more comprehensive problem. And unfortunately, the sad part is that the politics get in, in the way. They get in the way because it's it's not about, like, you know, keeping people out of a country. It's about keeping people alive. We're speaking to Derek Maltz. He's a former agent in charge of DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, Special Operations Division. Derek, is the Mexican government as serious as it needs to be when it comes to fighting the cartels? Buck, Buck, did you read the news yesterday? The president, the new president has basically said, there is no war on drugs, and he's no longer going to let the military folks go after the bad guys. Now, you know why that's a problem? That sounds like a no. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. So, so basically, Buck, the, the successes we've had in Mexico is because of the brave Marines that have gone out, captured Chapo twice. They've killed or captured some of the high-value targets for years for the DEA and Homeland Security in Mexico. The problem is now this president is going to take them out of the fight. So guess what? Now we're back to the corrupt federal police. If you saw some of the testimony in the Chapo Guzman case, it's mind-boggling the levels of corruption at the president level, at the high-level officials in the Mexican government. It's beyond what I even knew, Buck. And honestly, people say, oh, well, they're cooperators. They're just making stuff up. No, they're not making it up because their stories are corroborated. And you know what? It's very, very sad. And the country now has to reevaluate how do we want to deal day to day with Mexico. I mean, there there was some testimony in that federal court in New York about the Chapo trial, which you brought up, that suggested that the the drug uh, the drug cartel corruption in Mexico 
goes all the way up to the very top of the government. Yeah, allegedly, uh, our last uh, Mexican president received $100 million from Chapo's organization, the Sinaloa Cartel. They wanted to, he wanted $250 million, but they settled on $100 million. And there was some other really detailed testimony about some of the other high-level officials. And, and you know what? I've been hearing about that for years. When I was running the Special Operations Division, we were helping to coordinate and synchronize the efforts of 30 different participating agencies around the world and around the country. And we used to always get, uh, you know, uh, compromised in Mexico. Like, so even in the Chapo case, you know, I was, I was still on, on the job when we captured him the first time in February of 2014 uh, after he escaped from his house in the, in the sewer system and everything like that. But what people don't realize is all the, uh, all the efforts to capture Chapo prior to that were compromised because the leaks and the corruption. And so you, you can't do this unless you have the cooperation from the law enforcement and the leadership in these different countries. So we have a, we have a serious, complex challenge ahead to figure out how do we best deal with our neighbors on the southern border, because it's getting really, really difficult. And then you look at all these you know, caravans and these people coming from Honduras and the MS-13 and these other problems coming into our country. Uh, and then the financial burden to our citizens. It's really, really scary. Is this one one more for you, Derek? Is this is this the worst that the drug epidemic, any drug epidemic has been in this country? Well, from my opinion, yes, because here's why. Right now, the statistics are very misleading on the fentanyl and opioid deaths. You know why? Because Narcan is saving people every single day all over America. The first responders are administering Narcan. Now people are going out to CVS and Walgreens and they're buying their own Narcan. So they're not dying from this stuff because they have this awesome medicine, this Narcan. But here's the thing. We have now a meth crisis that no one really is even talking about in the, in the uh, national news. But like I said, China is sending chemicals to Mexican cartels, and they're no longer producing one or two pounds at a time, Buck. They're producing hundreds and thousands, hundreds of pounds and then thousands of pounds. When I was a young agent, if you seized one pound of meth in the country, it was a big case. Now they're seizing hundreds of pounds of meth. It's just mind-boggling. And yes, to answer your question, in my view, it's so out of control, and, and it's partially to blame on a lot of people, but here's the bottom line. I don't want to blame the previous people. I want to make it better for the future. And right now we have a serious issue. People are just not focusing in on how significant. It's not a health issue. It's a national crisis. It's a national security issue. It's well, that's why we got you here on the show, so we can get people yeah, to, to hear, hear the truth and pay attention. And uh, terrorists look, are tapping into these funds, Buck, every day. I know. Derek Maltz, former DEA Special Operations Division Chief. Derek, really appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Keep up the good work, buddy. Team, we'll be right back. Hiring can be really time consuming. You know, you post on a couple of different sites. Are you getting the best people? Are you making the best use of your time? Job sites that send you a lot of the wrong resumes, they're not smart. That's why you should do the smart thing and go to ziprecruiter.com slash buck. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. If you love this show, show your support to it and ZipRecruiter by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com.
com slash buck because ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Well, it's cold. It's very cold. It's brutal. <laughs> it's the coldest I've ever been. I think the word cold is not uh, a proper way to define it. It's just unbelievably cold. And it's like hard to take a breath in. It's, it's affecting my lungs a little bit. There's not enough layers for this kind of cold unless you're prepared to go to the Arctic. That's pretty freezy. Uh, nothing like I haven't been through before, but, you know, it's all good. It's just part of living in Minnesota. We like it cold up here. I remember when I was in Alaska and I asked people in Anchorage, which I know we've got a wonderful station up there in Anchorage right now that carries the show. Uh, I remember I was up in Alaska and they I heard from more than one person. I was like, how cold is it here in the winter? They said, well, it's not as cold as Minnesota. Turns out Minnesota is the coldest state in the country, but right now there's a whole bunch of very, very cold states. Producer Mike, what was the what was the record today? I know it got into like the negative negative thirty territory yeah. in some places. Is that the coldest I saw was negative thirty or thirty one in uh, in uh, Chicago, in right. Rockford, Illinois? Yeah, this is where you know a couple of things here. First of all, oh yeah, here you go, uh, Rockford, Illinois. We actually have a little sound from that play clip eight. Well, for starters, I want to give a shout out to Rockford, Illinois, which hit their all time cold record temperature, according to the National Weather Service. Negative 30 last night. That record stood since 1982. That's pretty cold. It was about 10 degrees here in D.C. And my my walk home, I could bear, I, 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 like an idiot left my gloves and the wrong coat. And so my, when I walked home, I could barely feel my hands. I thought it was funny. There were some people decided that today was an opportunity to make some kind of a, a political statement of sorts over, well, you, you did have, where is it? Let's see, Elizabeth Warren. Did we have, yeah, here we go. Our children and grandchildren should grow up in a world where they can breathe the air and drink the water and go outside without risking their lives in extreme temperatures. It's time to protect our planet and pass a Green New Deal. Oh, it's really cold outside. Pass my stupid socialist energy program that's going to make the country much poorer and much crappier. This is what libs do. They take advantage of every opportunity to push stupid ideas. Uh, but this was interesting. I wasn't expecting this. You know, I, I interviewed Governor Matt Bevin, I don't know, a few months back, and I thought he was very, very slick fellow, very, uh, very polished, very smooth. And he decided to, uh, to take an interesting approach to the, the whole freeze, uh, freezing of America situation today. Play clip one. By the way, you'll be up. You'll be up late tonight with your kids because there's no school again. It's, it's, it's again. You know, now we cancel school for cold. I mean, okay, it's what? deep freeze. This is serious it business. It is. Come on now. I mean, it's there's no ice going with it or any snow. I mean, what happens to America? We're getting soft, Terry. We're it, getting it, soft. It costs a lot of money to heat those classrooms. You think they're not heating them anyway? They're well, going. They put they, I'll put it on sixty-five. Uh, you would like to think so. As a taxpayer, we would like to think so. But I, I, again, I do appreciate it's it's better to err on the side of being safe, and and I and I'm being only slightly facetious, but it does concern me a little bit that in America, on this and any number of other fronts, we're sending messages to our young people that if life is hard, you can curl up in the fetal position somewhere in a warm place and just wait till it stops being hard, and that just isn't reality. Look at this, He's going Matt home to Bevin. His mom. Say hello to mommy. Yeah, exactly. Matt Bevin is uh, is calling out people who don't want to go to school because it's too cold outside. I mean, if it were just a little cold, I, I'd understand. I think negative thirty though that that probably 
that does make things a little bit harder. But I don't know. I mean, if, unless the travel is more dangerous and they can't, and the heating system in the school can't handle it, which I'm sure it can, maybe maybe he's got a point. Maybe he's onto something. This reminds me also of, I think I mentioned recently on the show that I had read, uh, I recommended to my dad that he read uh, Endurance about the Shackleton voyage, uh, the Ernest Shackleton's voyage to the uh, Antarct- Antarctic uh, continent. And the idea was that he was going to cross Antarctica on land. Never even got close. Spoiler alert, things go bad. And that book is one of these books where you got to get into it a little bit. Once you get into it, it's so messed up and so harsh and so surreal what, what these guys go through that I, it's a great, it's a great book. And you're reading it, you're like, man, wherever I am, I am so lucky not to be subsisting on seal blubber and trying to keep my toes from like actually breaking off because they're so frostbitten. And, you know, it, it's it was intense, man. That book is from, uh, I think, 19... 19- 14 was when they right right at the at the beginning of World War One is when they take off for this voyage, and it's a timeless classic. It's a great book. I would really really recommend it to you. But that's all about you know how long could you last living on an ice floe in Arctic or Antarctic uh, temperatures? And uh, the answer is you could last longer than you think as long as you got a nice good supply of whale blubber or or seal blubber, which. Um, I'm I'm currently trying to shed my seal blubber by eating a little healthier and getting to the gym, but you know as long as you got some of that, you're pretty much good to go, man. You can uh, and 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 some shelter and some fire making ability, but not exactly fun. Not exactly fun. So read the Shackleton Voyage and stay warm if you're out there listening to this in one of those colder parts of the country. Stay warm, team. We'll be right back. Have you heard about that story? Um, the Chicago situation of the act of an empire who was allegedly attacked with racist and homophobic. Um, and that, I can tell you, is horrible. I've seen it uh, last night. I think that's horrible. Uh, it doesn't get worse, as far as I'm concerned. So that was President Trump talking about this case that's gotten a fair amount of national media attention of this guy named Jussie Smollett. Now, in case you haven't heard of this before, let me tell you what's going on here. Jussie Smollett was uh, allegedly attacked around 2 a.m. last Tuesday morning. And the story was that the guys walked up to him. He said he was on the phone when he was attacked, and he was on the phone with his manager, I never heard of this guy, Jussie Smollett, before. But anyway, he's on the phone with his manager. He says he's attacked. His manager corroborates this. And he said that a guy, or I'm sorry, two guys came up to him and placed a noose around his neck. And I guess they they punched him, he said. And there are two suspects who were filmed in a different camera sitting on a bench, but on opposite sides from where Smollett was. Look, you read through the details. I can't. I don't want to read through the whole all of it right now, but you read through the details, and it just is one of these cases where I can't tell you that this is a fraud, but I can tell you that it is certainly suspect based on a few things. There is the possibility that I would have to come back on this show in a week and say I. I guess there were two random guys who yelled "Maga Nation." 
and put and punched a guy and then put a a loose noose that they happen to just carry around with them around his neck. That is possible. I, I cannot tell you there's no way that that happened. But what I, I can tell you, though, is that some of the fact pattern here is a little bit suspicious. Uh, for example, the um, individual here, Jussie Smollett, was attacked at 2 a.m., but police were not called until 2.35 a.m. And he was in his apartment, and I believe an associate that he was with called the police at 2.42 a.m. Or, you know, or rather, officers arrived at 2.42, but his associate was with him. Um, so there's quite a lag. Now, you could say maybe he was he was shook up and he was uh, very, you know, very concerned uh, and, and rattled and all that. That, that. Again, I can't tell you. I'm not saying he's lying. I don't know. I am saying this is a national news story, though, and there are some things that don't really add up. He also still had this rope noose. This actor, he's from the show Empire. Uh, if you some of you may be familiar with that show. He still had the noose around his neck when the police arrived, which also just strikes me as a, as a very odd thing. If somebody forced a noose around your neck and assaulted you, and then you went home, would you just sit there with the noose around your neck for 45 minutes? I, I can't say impossible, but strikes me as very strange. And then also, and they have all the surveillance footage the police have gone through, and none of the surveillance footage uh, shows any kind of assault taking place. There's a lot of surveillance cameras around where this happened. None of them show an assault taking place. So that's interesting to me. And then one more thing here. Smollett said that he was on the phone with his, with his uh, manager, Brandon Z. Moore. And the police said, okay, since you were on the phone with your manager during this incident... Give us your phone just so we can verify as part of the story what you're saying here. You know, this is this is standard police work, right? When you give them facts to work off of, and then they they want to verify those facts. Here's something that's very strange. Jussie Smollett wouldn't give the police his phone. Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of people that would want to come up with explanations for this of maybe he had a privacy issue or something, but if you had been attacked. And the police were verifying your story and they just wanted to look at your phone and your call log and see if it matched up with what you said. And then you didn't give the police your phone. I can tell you the cops would be pretty suspicious. And we also know that in this country, the left has created an environment where if you are in a victim category and something happens to you or you say something happens to you and it turns out to not be true, they will give you a pass for what they call raising awareness. Is this another hate crime hoax that will be covered up with raising awareness? Or is this a real bizarre and terrible attack? I don't know, but I got to tell you, I'm less confident in this being real than President Trump was when he answered that question in the presser today. The show ain't over yet, folks. Here's where you take over. Keeping it real. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Roll Call. It is the time for the Roll of the Call. 
thank you all for writing in and being uh, being so helpful in this process, telling me what's going on with the show, what you like, what your thoughts are, what you ate for dinner last night. Uh, John starts us off here. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want in on roll call. Uh, John writes, Wednesday's reference was to Animal Farm. John, you are correct. Four legs good, two legs bad. That is from... Roll, that's not from Roll Call, it's from Animal Farm, another masterpiece. One of the most, uh, one of the most important books that a young person, I think, can read. Um, and, I mean, 1984 is in, in a list of, I think, you could make of maybe, people would say 100 books, but really 10 books that you absolutely have to have read to have an understanding of the Western world. I think 1984 is in that category. Uh, and certainly the contemporary Western world. And Animal Farm is a great book, and it's a quick read, so well worth, it's incredibly insightful about the nature of communism and authoritarianism, uh, so it's worth it to go back, it's a good, it's a good weekend read, you'll, you'll read the whole thing in a day. Dave writes, Buck Shields High, to me, AOC's comments on the rich are even more disturbing than you suggested. Her anti-billionaire stance boils down to one thing. She's anti-individual liberty and self-determination. Under her ideology, certain levels of success and accomplishment are simply not allowed, and no discussion about how much good someone could do with the billions they create is considered. Being dumb enough to think bakers have an unfair share of pie is one thing, but this increasingly popular opinion on the left has graduated from pure ignorance to evil despotism, which touches on another topic from last night's show, why does the left oppose Israel? It's simple, because Christians are for it. Uh, Dave, as for your point about the popularity of the class warfare ideology of Ocasio-Cortez and Warren and Bernie Sanders, I mean, it's not like Ocasio-Cortez is the only one. This is something that people on the left, which means the Democratic Party, increasingly believes it, it is disturbing. Um, it is disturbing because it shows an ignorance of how our economy works, but also, I think, a uh, a disregard for understanding, right? It's, it's not just that they don't know, it's that they don't care that they don't know, because it feels good. It feels good to talk about how bad the billionaires are, right? It feels good for people to uh, put themselves in a position where they can look down on those that they feel like have been looking down on them. Um, just because of their wealth or their status in society. And envy is very powerful. I have been saying it for a long time. Envy is a very powerful political tool, really a political weapon. And it is at the heart of the Democrat Democrat uh, coalition and, and their project for retaking the White House. Adam writes, the reference was Animal Farm Shields High. All right, Adam, you got it too. Well done, sir. Well done. Philip Shieldtabuck, the push for acceptance of ultra-late-term abortions is merely to desensitize us to evil. Over time, more and more vile things will be considered normal until such time as cannibalism is no longer taboo, and just when the food runs out, Soylent Green, Phil in Montana. Phil, we have been desensitized. I think that's, that's obviously and, and uh, clearly the case. We have been desensitized when it comes to babies and what's being done to babies. I mean, the, the stuff that was not just under discussion, that was being proposed as law in Virginia and is law in New York State 
it, it is inf- infanticide. We have to call things what they are. And this re- this reminds me of why I get so agitated and so obstinate on calling people who are men women and using the wrong pronouns. I don't like and I'm not okay with and will not go along with the embrace of falsehood, even simple falsehoods, even simple falsehoods. Um, you know, this is something in a in a uh, totalitarian society. One of one of the marks of a totalitarian society is that everybody just to avoid just to avoid the the possibility of reprisals from the state against them. They don't just say things that are big things that are untrue. They start to say little things that are untrue as well, meaning that they'll just say whatever the regime tells them about everything. You know, your shoelaces are the best shoelaces anyone's ever made in the world. And people start walking around saying, yes, my shoelaces are the best shoelaces, not because they believe it, because they're afraid if they don't say it, they'll get in trouble. Uh, So that's something that I, I think that this reminds me of you you give up a part of yourself you give up something very important in your core when you're willing to say things are true that are not true and essentially embrace some kind of alternate reality because people in the power structure tell you to so mike writes uh, as a former corling um, I believe Robert McCoy would be a valuable resource for you on North and South Korea. Here's his latest publication. Um, all right, I've never I've never heard of this guy, but I will uh, I'll check it out. Thanks for sending it along, Richard. I use my Castbox as my go-to podcast player. I've been listening to you Warren there for well over the past year, and they have everything, including Shields Hut and Freedom Hut. You Jesse and Sean are just a hoot. I re-listen to both shows when I need an emotional boost. Dr. Dr. Rick. Well, thanks, Dr. Rick. Yeah, I want to do another Jesse and Sean show. That was fun, you know, and we got a lot of a lot of people downloaded that. And that just we just did that for, you know, for kicks. We just did that for fun. So I'd be happy to do that one. Uh, I do that again with those guys. I really don't want to get them all in the same place. Let's see what we have here. Um, morning, listening to your Kamala the Radical, good insight. Additionally, I am the machine, the best. I share that as often as possible. So I guess, Andres, you know that I am the machine is uh, is from a comedian. If you type in I am the machine in YouTube, you'll be able to see this, guys. You know what? Here, I'll, I'll do it for So you don't, because I'm here. Team, I, I live to serve you. Uh, I, I am here to serve your audio needs. And so I'll tell you who the guy is that is I am the machine. Bert Kreischer does a stand-up thing, and you'll see him when you go on YouTube. His Russian mafia story is very funny. I highly recommend it. And now you'll all know the I'm the Machine reference. Travis, I listen to the podcast on Stitcher Daily. I have absolutely zero issue downloading and listening. I just finished listening to barbaric Democrats pushing infanticide. At the end, I heard you read another listener's message saying he listens on Stitcher and couldn't listen. Thought you might know. Not everyone's having issues. Hey, Travis. I'll take it, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I much prefer people being able to listen to this show that we work very hard to put together every day and, and pull together. Um, so it's important that the technology works. Thank you for letting me know. Steve writes, excellent show tonight. Love how you cover so many topics and issues every night. Got two conservative friends that started listening to you since Monday. Steve, man, you get a high five. Thank you so much. That means that's means the world. You certainly didn't disappoint and people gather the thoughts pretty quickly. Shields high. 
Steve, that's awesome, man. Thank you. And your dog's really cute in the photo. And I uh, appreciate you passing along uh, passing along word to your friends. Um, the single most most helpful thing that everybody everybody can do for this show, just tell a friend. Be like, yo, if you listen to podcasts, you got to just add the Buck Saxon Show to your podcast lineup and, and see what they have to say. Uh, we got Rev, who writes, I'm, a, I'm an avid listener in Mobile, Alabama. Or no, this is Lonnie, sorry. I listen to part of your show. Unfortunately, your program is sometimes cut short by something something called the Pelicans football talk or something like that. What I would like to know is, is there a station in my area that won't preempt your show? Lonnie, uh, Lonnie, yeah, it's called the iHeartRadio app, which is free. Or you can also um, download the podcast on iTunes, which means you can't listen live, but you can listen right after the show. Uh, but the iHeart app, if you t- download that to your smartphone, and type in the Buck Sexton show, and it's just it's just a stream there that you can listen live anytime you want. So if if your if your local station is preempting me for some BS sports show, uh, just get around them by listening on the on the on the iHeart app. All right, there you go. Um, Jim writes, a caller to Mark Levin just before you came on and said this is nothing less than human sacrifice to Satan and paganism. I used to live in Annandale, Virginia. And I was born in Long Island, New York. I'm surprised about Virginia. Yeah, Jim, it's it's a horrible thing that they're doing. And and I will say I, I appreciate that this audience, from what I'm gathering at the feedback, I, I know that talking about abortion and these issues is heavy and that people, everyone's got a, 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 enough of a burden to carry with their day-to-day. And I want them to come to this show and know that they're going to learn stuff, but they're also going to be able to relax a bit. I mean, we talk about it's important and there's some degree of, of a... Uh, intellectual mobilization that we do here every day together. But I, I also don't want people to get sad or, or too bummed out listening to any part of the show. That said, some things are too important and we just got to do it. And yesterday I thought was one of them. So the sense I'm getting from many of you is that you uh, you understood that and you appreciate that. And I always try to balance it out as best I can. Karen writes, hey, Buck, the news today on your podcast is truly disturbing. The infanticide issue is right up there with people who used to burn their babies in the arms of Baal and the reason the children of Israel ended up going into slavery. We need to remember that as Christians and as a Christian nation, are we truly willing to sacrifice ourselves? Truly scary. I guess Obama's right. We aren't a Christian nation. Karen. Well, Karen, don't give up quite yet. This country is still an amazing place and it is still a a predominantly Christian place and it is to its great benefit that that is the case. So... Let's just hope that we can keep fighting back and and do what is do what is right, not just for our country, but for God as well. I'm going to close up Shop in the Hut tonight, team. With that, I'll be talking to you tomorrow from NYC. Until next time, Shields High. Morning coffee is an American institution, my friends. And when it comes to starting my day off right, I reach for the most American pro-freedom, pro-veteran coffee in the world, Black Rifle Coffee. I start off every day with Black Rifle Coffee. I spread it to guys in my office. I want to get them fired up for a good day in the office. I throw them a couple of K-cups. They throw them in the machine. Bam! We're off to the races. It is so delicious. I'm going to tell you, it's got a real kick to it, too. It'll, it'll get you up and running fast. Black Rifle also gives a portion of their sales to veteran and first responder causes, and they've got a coffee club that makes things easy. You just pick your blend, and they'll ship the coffee right to your door. Wake up every day with America's Coffee. Black Rifle Coffee. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck and receive 15% off your order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Again, BlackRifleCoffee.com.
dot com slash buck for 15% off. This is the coffee you want to drink. Check it out, team.